All right. Well, um, so it's fun to watch the, uh, the way that the Lord brings things together in the, in the absence of, of real true planning. And so uh, it's fun to listen to those songs. And uh, the last one, In Christ Alone, the, the word, the, the lyrics say, In Christ Alone, my hope is found. And that's really what we're going to talk about today. So um, let me pray for us, and then we'll begin our time. Father, we thank you for the gift of life and the blessing that you give us in your Son, we're thankful that you give us an opportunity to come together in a way that um, we can honor you through our worship. We pray, Lord, that that has been honoring to you this morning. And Lord, we ask that as we uh, begin our time in your scriptures today, that it would be you speaking and not me. I pray that you would impact our hearts in a way that would allow us to leave here changed people, changed to renew our strength and our commitment uh, and understand our confidence that the in the hope that we have in your son and what he did on our behalf. So, Father, be with us today. I pray for your blessing over our time. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, we're going to spend our time today in Hebrews. So if you want to spend some uh, spend some time getting there, we're going to cover quite a few passages. Um, I'll read some of them, but we're going to bounce around, but mostly in Hebrews today. Um, the young couples class finished about a nine-month study of Hebrews just a few weeks ago. And uh, as I was asked to, to take one of the Sundays during Todd's um, sabbatical, uh, it made sense to teach out of that section, and so uh, excited to do that today. Now, um, the title of today is Confidence in Christ. Uh, who is Jesus, and is he enough? And um, I'll just be a, give you a spoiler alert. The answer is yes, he's enough. So... You know, I don't want you to be surprised at the end, but the answer is yes, absolutely, he's enough. And we're going to talk some today about who he is and why he's enough. So, but before we do that, I want to go through a scenario. Imagine that you're a Hebrew believer. That's one that was raised Jewish, but has put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as a result of the testimony of people like Paul and Timothy and Barnabas. Your whole life is centered around the law, when you could work, when you had to rest, when sacrifices were due, when yeast could be used. Your whole life was centered on the faithfulness of God to save, but it seemed couched in your effort and diligence to follow the law. But now you've recognized the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and believe that his death on the cross was accepted by God as payment for your sins for all time. You've trusted Christ as your Savior and recognize that the grace that's been bestowed on you as a result of your faith. Life is good for a while. And as you begin to live in this newfound liberty, you begin to get questions about who Jesus was. The challenges come over and over from those who disbelieve in the grace that can be found in faith in Christ. You are continuing to be pulled back to tradition, back into your old life where you are in control where if you just do the right things, then you will be saved. How do you answer those questions? Naysayers say that he was simply a prophet. Some say he was an angel. He couldn't be greater than Moses, could he? And what evidence is there that we no longer need the law? How is it that we are no longer supposed to offer sacrifices to the priest and the high priest offer sacrifices on our behalf? We still need those intercessors, don't we? Those mediators make us right with God, don't they? You're a Hebrew. It's what we do. Now, 
If you're like me, you listen to that scenario and you go, well, I'm not Hebrew. I'm not Jewish. I wasn't raised Jewish and those statutes really don't apply to me. I've never been in a situation where I had to do those things in effort to uphold the law. And so it's hard for me to think in those terms. Well, let me give you a different scenario. Imagine that you're a believer. That's one that was raised to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as a result of people of the testimony of people like mom, dad, brother, sister, friend. Your whole life is centered around church. When you could work, when you had to rest, when you went to Sunday school, what the proper etiquette in church was, when you had mass, what you were to say during liturgy or responsive readings, when and how to do confession, and the list goes on. Your whole life was centered around the faithfulness of God to save, but it seemed couched in your effort and diligence to follow the laws of the church, to live in such a way where people viewed you as Christian. You've recognized the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and believe that his death on the cross was accepted by God as payment for your sins for all time. You've trusted Christ as your savior and you recognize the grace that's been bestowed upon you as a result of your faith. Life is good for a while. As you live your life in grace-filled liberty, you slowly begin to live as though how you look is more important than what you believe. As you head to college or work, people know what you believe, but they challenge you on the hypocrisy of Christians they know. They can't see why anyone would want to be a part of the church of critics where everyone judges everyone else, where compassion is lost while pious eyes criticize. Critics tell you that it's fine if you want to believe those ancient fables about God and Christ, just leave them alone about it. This is America, and independence is king. When you do speak about Christ, you get questions about who Jesus, who Jesus was. The challenges come over and over. And from those who disbelieve in the grace that can be found in Christ. You are continually mocked for your faith and pulled back into tradition, back into your old life where you were in control, where if you just did the right things, worked hard at being good, then in your opinion, you'd be saved. Critics say he was simply a prophet, some say an angel. He couldn't be greater than George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King Jr. I mean, these men made lasting changes on our world. Grace? Really? What evidence is there that I no longer need to work and be good? And by the way, salvation from what? I'm not a bad person, they say. I do a lot of good things. And if there is a God, and if he loves me as, he, as you say he does, then I'll just live the best life I can. My good will outweigh my bad. And I hope he takes me at the pearly gates. This country was founded on spiritual liberty, they say. I can believe however I want. My liberty has given me the independence to do what I want. I'm an American. It's what we do. So this weekend we celebrate Independence Day. Where we're filled with pride about being part of the greatest country in the world, which I believe it is. But let's step back today and, answer, and ask and answer the question, who is Jesus? Is he enough? Where is our hope? And in what or who do we place our confidence? Well, the answers to the first two questions are woven throughout the entire Bible. But I'm going to center our, and focus our answers on those that are provided in the letter to the Hebrews. As I mentioned, the young couples recently completed a nine-month study on this book uh, or this letter, as did... Uh, Bob and Kanatani's class, and quite frankly, I think I would have enjoyed sitting in on his class. So 
Um, and Roger, as well, divine intervention would have it. He, uh, as we talked about what he would be teaching, I'm kind of sandwiched in between his messages. Uh, as you recall, he's doing a series on faith that endures in a changing world and a shifting culture. Well, gee, that's interesting. Based out of Hebrews. So last week, he def- or two weeks ago, he defined biblical faith uh, using chapter 11. Uh, and last week, he continued his discussion of enduring faith by looking at Rahab's faith. So as we continue this week, let's talk about where our confidence and hope are found. Now, the letter to the Hebrews is a letter that describes who Jesus is and was. It is a letter that confirms for its readers that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah, and that despite the fact that he did not rule and reign on this earth as they had interpreted and expected, he was the perfect fulfillment of the Messianic prophecies, and his sacrifice fulfilled the law. The letter confirms that he was and is worthy of their faith. The hope that they initially had was pure. Their confidence in their hope should not waver, yet many were struggling to stay true to their faith. Well, after Jesus was crucified and the years went by, the Hebrew believers were under pressure and persecution for their belief in Christ. And as a result, they were being pressured to return to the Hebrew traditions and life under the law. These were Christian believers, people who had put their faith and trust in what Christ had done for them, and they had started their walk as believers. But now the pressure of persecution was causing them to stumble. The pressure was causing their vigor for the Lord to slowly be replaced with the familiarity of tradition. And while not exactly the same, I believe that our situation in America is very similar. While we are not at immediate risk of losing life, liberty, and property for our faith, I believe the pressures of this life and the cries from those opposed to Christian values have a tendency to lead some believers to become stifled in their growth and willing to settle for the tradition of church instead of actively pursuing a vibrant and bold faith, having confidence in the object of their faith and in whom they believe. Ultimately, the answer to the question, who is Jesus?, And the follow-up question of is he enough are critical questions to answer in order for each of us to move beyond that initial decision to place our faith and trust in his sacrifice. And this is really what the writer of Hebrews was writing about. The Hebrews had placed their faith and trust in Christ for salvation, but their confidence in him was being challenged and shaken. And they were at risk of the world pulling them off track, not experiencing the rest and blessings that God desired to bestow upon them. And the message is really the same today. So this letter provides us with a strong reminder of who Jesus is. It warns us to stay true to our faith in the only one who is set apart to save us from our disbelief and our perpetual sin. Hebrews is a letter that calls us to recognize who Christ is. He is superior to all others. It calls us to remember what he's done. He is our king priest, our perfect sacrifice, our great mediator. So have confidence and stay on track. It calls us to refocus our confidence and faith in him and his work. He is worthy of our faith and offers hope. So let's look at each of these as we move through today. So number one, recognize who Christ is. He is superior to all others. Jesus was not simply a prophet. He was not an angel. In fact, scripture says that Jesus is God's son. It says he was the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God. So let's look at scripture together. If you'll turn to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, let me read. 
Hebrews chapter 1, 1 through 4, says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom <coughs> excuse me, he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory. <coughs> My, excuse me. He is the radiance of his glory. <clears throat> the devil doesn't want me to read this. <coughs> he is the radiance of his glory. The exact representation of God. Of, or exact representation of his nature. And upholds all things by the word of his power. <clears throat> when he, Christ, had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much better than the angels as he inherited a more excellent name than they. The first thing we can recognize from this section of scripture is that God speaks. He spoke through the prophets. He spoke through his son. He speaks through scripture. The scriptures tell us that Jesus was higher than the prophets and the angels. He is God's son. He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of God. Now, what I want you to understand about that comment of the radiance of God's glory is that it doesn't say he was a reflection of God's glory. It doesn't say that he reflected the glory that God had to everyone else. It says that, that he was the radiance of God's glory, indicating that, that, that God was within him. He was God. He was radiating what the glory of God himself. He is the exact representation of God, and therefore, if we've seen Jesus, we've seen God. And because of who he is, he sits at the right hand of God. It goes on to tell us that Jesus was higher than Moses. If you flip to Hebrews 3, it tells us that um, Jesus was higher than Moses. Let's look at verse 3. It says, For he, Christ, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. Verse 6 says, But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and boast and the boast of our confidence, excuse me, and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Now, because of Christ's position, his nature and his resurrection, he is our high priest and therefore higher than Moses. In this section earlier, it talks about Christ being referred to as apostle and high priest of our confession. And ultimately, the Christ is the son of God and we are to hold fast our confidence and boast of our hope. Jesus was higher than Moses. Jesus was a sacrifice on our behalf. We look at chapter 2. Verse 9 tells us that he took a place lower than the angels for a little while as he left heaven to become a man. And he did that in order to taste death for all of us. But if we read uh, chapter 2, 14 to 15, it says... Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. Verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest 
in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So that passage tells us that uh, through his death, he rendered powerless the devil. He became a payment for sin on our behalf. Jesus was our sacrifice. It also tells us in chapter 7 that Jesus is our forever king priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. And the time won't allow me to go into explain who Melchizedek was, but if you're interested, that all we know about him is listed in two passages in Scripture, Genesis 14, 17 to 20, and Psalm 110, 4, which is actually included in, in Hebrews. What we do know, however, was that he was... Uh, a king and a priest. He was king of Salem and a priest. And as Abraham is returning from battle and sees Melchizedek, uh, Abraham bows to him, showing honor. The chapter 7 goes on to talk about, uh, make the argument that if the law and um, the Levitical priesthood led to perfection, then there would have been no need for another priest to arise. And yet, here we have a story about Christ being our perfect priest. The argument will be made later that since these Levitical priests were temporal and constantly offering sacrifices, that a perpetual priest, a permanent priest, would be better. So let's take a look at Hebrews 7, 18 to 22. <clears throat> For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he, will, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So much, so much the more, also, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. So we see here that Christ offers a better hope through which we draw near to God. He became the guarantee of a better covenant, the new covenant. And he is our permanent priest, an eternal priesthood. He goes on to talk about in verse 24. Verse 25 says that he's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So Jesus is our high priest, our, high, our king priest. Now Jesus was also a mediator, interceding on our behalf. Chapter 8 goes into that. So let's take a look at Hebrews chapter 8. Now, I don't know about you, but when uh, the, one of the passages in Scripture is, now the main point in what is said is this, that gets my attention. Oh, wow, they're going to make it easy for me. Okay? So the writer says, now the main point in what I've been telling you, or what has been said, is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary, and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. The main point is that we have a high priest. He's taken his seat, and he, he uh, ministers within the tabernacle, that the Lord pitched, not man. The Levitical system was merely a copy or shadow of heavenly things, 
verses 3 to 5 say. And verses 6 to 7 in that same section tell us about how Christ has obtained a more excellent ministry. Read with me, 8, 6 through 7. It says, But now he, Christ, has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. Wait a minute. Now, didn't God implement the first one? But the scriptures tell us that if the first one had been faultless, there wouldn't be a need for a second one. Well, before you get all uptight, let me explain that to you. The problem was is that the first covenant, God upheld his promise. We just didn't do our part. And it was an illustration that showed us that nothing in us would allow us to earn salvation. And so there had to be another way. And Christ was that way. The writer goes on in verse 8 to reference Jeremiah 31, where the promise of that new covenant is given. And verse 13 in Hebrews 8 uh, says that ultimately the new covenant has made the old covenant obsolete. Now, if we jump over to chapter 9, verse 15, we learn that because of his sacrifice, Christ entered the holy place once and for all, or once for all, and how much more will the blood of Christ cleanse our conscience than the blood of goats and calves? 9.15 says this, For this reason he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that, since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. He is the mediator of a new covenant. His death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that occurred under the first covenant so that we might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. So as if we summarize this first section, for me personally, as I pondered the question, who is Jesus, I recognize that my perspective of Christ is paramount in order for my faith to grow. Having an accurate view of Christ drives my ability to put and keep my faith in him and his work on the cross. You've heard this quote before. Todd's used it. Many, of, many people have used this before. But A.W. Tozer said that what we think of when we think of God is the most important thing about us. Understanding that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, that he is the exact representation of God, that he became a sacrifice for me and for you, and that he sits at God's right hand mediating, mediating and interceding on my behalf, that's incredible. He is superior to all others. He is enough, and he's worthy of my faith, and he's worthy of yours. So we've recognized who he is, but now let's remember what he's done. He is our king priest, our perfect sacrifice, our great mediator, so we can have confidence in him, his work, and we can stay on track. Well, what track, you say? Well, the Lord's will, wherever he wills us. So what impact should it have on our lives that we know and understand who Christ is? How does knowing and recognizing and trusting who Jesus is affect our lives? Well, the writer provides the answers in a series of warnings and directives. And ultimately, these truths should solidify our confidence in him, and our confidence should keep us on track or in line with his will. 
So there's a ser- these series of, of warnings are don't drift away, don't stop believing, don't become dull of hearing, and don't fall away. So let's look at each of those uh, individually and look at what the, uh, the writer tells us is the solution for those. Don't drift away. Stay anchored to the truth of who Christ is, chapter 2. So as we flip back to chapter 2, we know that uh, Christ is greater than the prophets and angels. And since he is, it says, for this reason, we must pay close at, uh, closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was the first, after it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. So we're to pay close attention to the gospel so that we should not drift away from it. And in this regard, our faiths and lives, our faith and lives are likened to a vessel or a boat that can be caught in the currents of life and blown by the winds of the world. And quite frankly, analogies about boats in this part of the country don't really work, but wind, we get that part. (laughs) So we're not to be blown off course. The warning is that unless we stay committed to the anchor of our soul, which is described in chapter 6, we will most assuredly drift away into the world. Don't drift away. Stay anchored to the truth of who Christ is. Don't stop believing. Some of you are thinking about the journey song, but I'm not going to talk about that. But we're called to not stop believing. Hold fast and boast of the hope that we have in Christ. Now, If we flip to chapter 3, verses 12 through 19, talk about don't stop believing and therefore allow yourself to be hardened by sin. The unbelief of the Israelites had led to their inability to enter the rest that had been promised them in this life, in the promised land. So their unbelief had limited their ability to enter into their spiritual act of worship. Chapter 5 tells us don't become dull of hearing. Listen to what the word of God says and grow into spiritual maturity. If you'll turn to chapter 5, read with me verses 11 to 14. It says, Concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Ouch. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes of only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So don't become dull of hearing. Listen to the word of God and grow into spiritual maturity. The writer warns us that we've become dull of hearing. And technically or or directly what that means is that we don't listen well. It's not that we can't hear. We're not listening. And as a result, even though many of us should be teachers, we're still 
not growing into maturity, requiring milk instead of solid food. And then chapter 6 goes on to say, don't fall away, but instead be diligent to realize the full assurance of your hope in Christ. Chapter 6, verses 1 to 6 say, as it continues on in that discussion, it says, therefore, as a result of not listening well and not growing up in the Lord, leaving the elementary, of the elementary teachings about the Christ, let us press on to maturity not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. So in light of the fact that we're not maturing, we're to press on to maturity, leaving behind the things of the past that are no longer needed and not fall away from the message of salvation in Christ. Now, let me be clear. The series of warnings that are listed in Hebrews are not talking about losing salvation. Okay, so let me be clear, that's not what this is about. If that's what the writer was describing, it would be in total contradiction to the entire rest of Scripture. And in the context of the entire book, it's clear that those warnings are not talking about losing salvation. Okay, so I want to make that point clear to us so we don't get confused. But if you continue and look in Hebrews 11, it does talk about the faith that these people had as some call the hall of fame of faith. Those weren't perfect people, but they had faith. What they might have done, though, is missed out on the blessings and the rest that God had promised them in this life. They were unable to, the Israelites were unable to enter their spiritual service of worship, and while they may have been saved for eternity, the condition of their heart may have been in a place where our lives are not committed to service of the king. Now, there's enough, uh, enough in this passage or series of passages to do a series of sermons on growth, the growth of the believer. But without the recognition of who Christ is and what he's done and the recognition of the confidence we, sh we can or should have in him, it doesn't matter much what we do. Our faith will not likely grow beyond our own effort or our own perspective of who he is. I'm confident that our faith grows to meet the scope of what we put our faith in. Well, let me give you an analogy. My son told me analogies were good. Twice. Now think of it this way, repelling. Now some of the folks in the room went repelling while you guys were in Glorietta. That's, isn't that fun? It's a great thing. Now um, the, the, the folks that did that had to put their faith in equipment and people right? Ropes, harnesses, and hooks, and then somebody who's at the bottom who's controlling the belay. Now, the confidence that, if you were one of those that did that, the confidence that you had in going off the side of this big platform up in the trees, 30 or 40 feet, was based on what you knew about the equipment and the people that were conducting the repelling station. Is that fair? 
The confidence that you had that you weren't going to plummet to the earth was based on the confidence that you had in the people and the equipment that was being used. And my guess is they educated you a little bit about this is why we do it this way. Safety's the key, right? Well, in this case, case, faith was being sure of what you hoped for, reaching the ground safely, and certain of what you cannot see, that you would make it even though you hadn't seen anybody else do it yet. Now, the person who went first likely had more faith than the person who went last. Are you with me? So in the context of our faith, what we, uh, what we put our faith in is important. So is Jesus enough? As a people in a free world, one of the biggest challenges is that our confidence is easily placed in our own abilities and effort. And please don't hear me saying that our abilities and effort aren't important. But if our confidence and the hope that we have for eternity is based on our ability, we're missing the blessings and rest that God provides in this life when we trust him. I believe that this letter to the Hebrews is trying to get us to understand that our faith grows to meet the level of confidence we have in the object of our faith. Let me say that again. Our faith grows to meet the level of confidence we have in the object of our faith. In other words, if we truly recognize who Christ is and what he's done on our behalf, then our faith will grow based on that recognition. However, if we really don't know who Christ is, then our confidence and the hope we have in him may be easily shaken. The writer of Hebrews is trying to get his readers and subsequently us to refocus their faith on the appropriate object of their faith. So as we finish this section, personally, as I went through this, I recognized that what Christ had done on my behalf, he sacrificed his life for mine. And now he intercedes and mediates for me daily. If that's true, then I need to draw near to him with a sincere heart. I need to listen to his direction from scripture, from the Holy Spirit, from the body of Christ. Understanding who Jesus is and what he's done on my behalf leads me to continue to grow in my faith and stay on track. His sacrifice was the perfect sacrifice. His sacrifice was enough. And if we truly understand who Christ is and what he's done, then our faith will grow to match our confidence and hope that we have in him. So, so far we've recognized who he is, we've remembered what he's done, now let's refocus our confidence. If we have faith in, in the work of Christ Jesus, we need to have confidence that his death was sufficient. Sufficient from what? Sufficient to save us from our sin of disbelief as well as our perpetual sins of our heart of flesh. Hebrews 3, 1 through 6, we've looked at it already, says that Christ is the Son of God, Hold fast our confidence and boast of our hope. Hebrews 10 talks about having confidence to enter the holy place, to have fellowship with God, to draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith because we have been made clean. We're to stay anchored to the truth of God's word. Hebrews 6, 19 to 20 says that the hope we have is an anchor of the soul a hope both sure and steadfast. And read with me Hebrews 4, 11 through 13, and then we'll read 14 to 16 as well. But we're to stay anchored 
to the truth of God's word. Hebrews 11 through 13. It says this, Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest, so that no one will fall through, or sorry, so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So the word of God is clearly the remedy for some of the things that the writer of Hebrews is describing. We're to stay anchored to the truth of God's word. And let us be diligent to enter that rest by staying true to his word. The cure, but, uh, the cure for unbelief is to stay focused on his word. We're to be confident to approach the throne of grace so that we may offer grace uh, to others. Read, continue reading with me verses 14 to 16 in chapter 4. It says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Verse 16, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So because we have a high priest, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace in order to receive mercy and find grace for us, yes, but also to offer others in time of need. Isn't that a beautiful picture? You see, the Hebrews would have understood that the sacrificial system created, that their sin created separation from God. And that the sacrificial system was designed to bring them back into fellowship temporarily with God. But it was a constant system. They were constantly offering sacrifices. There was an outer room and the inner room. And the outer room was used for sacrifices on a daily basis. The inner room was once a year the high priest would take a sacrifice within to the inner room, into the Holy of Holies, and offer that sacrifice on behalf of the entire congregation. But see, that high priest was one who had to offer sacrifice on his own behalf before he went into the Holy of Holies. But see, Christ took care of that. Because he was the sacrifice, a perfect, sinless human was the only sacrifice that would take care of that sin for all, once for all. It's done. When he died on the cross, he said, it is finished. And what happened? The veil was torn in two that separated the outer room from the inner. And suddenly, as a result of that sacrifice, we have the ability to approach the throne of grace directly. And Christ is sitting there mediating and interceding on our behalf. He is our high priest, and he takes his own sacrifice, and that brings us into full assurance of our faith and our hope. The fact that Christ is who he said he was, higher than the prophets, angels, and Moses, the fact that he became the perfect sacrifice to fulfill the law, and in doing so became our high priest, 
uh, puts us in a position where we don't need to go through the processes that were there in the law. The veil was torn in two. There's no longer a need for those rooms. And so we're to stay committed to the church. We're to draw near to one another with the full assurance of faith, stimulating one another to love and good deeds, encouraging one another, not because it makes you feel good, but because we need each other. And I won't read it, but you're familiar with uh, chapter 10, where it talks about having confidence to enter the holy place, drawing near in full assurance of faith because we've been made clean. But then it goes on to tell us that we need one another and we're not to forsake our assembling together as is the habit of some, but we're to encourage one another and stimulate one another to love and good deeds. So as we wrap up this portion of our worship time, our initial questions were, who is Jesus and is he enough? Is he enough that we place our faith and confidence in him alone? I told you at the beginning the answer was yes. But if we recognize who Christ is, he is superior to all others. He, is, he was not simply a prophet. He is not an angel. He's higher than Moses. He is the son of God and therefore a king. He is the exact representation of God. He is the radiance of God's glory. And he sits at God's right hand. We were, to re we were to remember what he's done. He is our king priest, our sacrifice, our mediator. And because of this, he is enough. He was our perfect sacrifice, our payment for sin, once for all who believe. He is our king priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, perpetual and forever. And therefore, we need no other. He is our mediator and intercedes on our behalf. The guarantee of a better covenant, a new covenant one that is founded on faith and offers grace for our sin of disbelief. We are to refocus our confidence and faith in him and his, in his work. He's worthy of our faith and he offers hope. A clear picture of Jesus allows us to stay the course by staying anchored to the word of God and God's people. We are given the opportunity to approach the throne of grace with confidence, receiving mercy to offer others in time of need. Now, notice that there's not a lot of answers in what do I do now? And I have to tell you that that was kind of hard for me. I'm kind of a person of action. I like to, okay, what's the problem? Let's decide on an action. Let's go take care of it. But as I, as I prayed through and pondered the, the message that I believe the writer of Hebrews was giving, I believe that the issue of what to do is irrelevant in the absence of what their faith and confidence was placed in. Chapters 10 and 12 and 13 of Hebrews talk more about, as a result of all these things I've told you, then this is what you're to do with that. And it's great information. Um, but for me, the Lord was working on my heart to help me recognize, quit doing these things until you truly understand who I am. Quit doing these things because they're, you're just doing them. I want you to focus on who I am. I want you to focus on what I've done for you. And if you truly understand, Carrie Gilbert, who I am and what I've done, then you will, I can guide you by my spirit into this spiritual act of worship that is your life. So I'm not going to give you the list. 
He is enough, and he's worthy of our confidence. Our hope is found in nothing less than Jesus and his righteousness. So based on who Christ is, let us have confidence in the object of our faith. Let us be strengthened in our hope, and in doing so, our hearts will be strengthened to do his will, loving one another as he has loved us. So to wrap up today, I have the honor uh, and privilege of leading us through our celebration of communion. And so I'll ask the men to come forward. And as they're coming forward, and I guess I need to stay up here with the microphone for a minute, but based on all that we've discussed today, I pray that the Lord will open our hearts to truly understand who Jesus is. I pray that as we approach the table, we would approach with confidence and full assurance of our hope in Christ. I pray that we understand that he sits at God's right hand as our great king priest, having offered himself as the better sacrifice in order to fulfill the law so that we could experience a better covenant, a covenant of grace. I pray that we will see Jesus as our eternal mediator interceding on our behalf. I pray that we would embrace the gift of salvation that lies in our faith and trust in the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture says that he approached the cross with joy, Hebrews 12, 2. Joy because he knew that his sacrifice would be once for all who believe. 